was, both as regards the actions he commits and regards his, regarding his motivation for those actions. The actions with which we begin are fourfold. In the first place, we're told in verse 9 that Diotrephes doth not receive the brethren. He receiveth us not. Now, the point of the apostle is that the words of the apostle, and not the apostle only, but the us, other godly believers, and the admonitions of these men, Diotrephes will not listen to. And we ask the question, in what way did John try to speak to Diotrephes already? He says, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes receiveth us not. So it may very well be, it is apparently even the case, that he wrote an epistle to the church. And I read 2 John, in part because we've read 3 John a couple of times already, but also because some suggest that that is the epistle to which he now refers. In fact, although we can't be dogmatic, and it's not a point of salvation, so we don't need to be dogmatic, it is likely that 2 John is not that epistle, because it appears that 2 John and 3 John are written at the same time and delivered by the same messenger. And that's not the way John presents the matter in the text. He wrote unto the church, some time has passed, and it becomes evident that Diotrephes has not received, he did receive in hand, but he doesn't receive in heart the epistle. And so, having had time to realize that that first epistle did no good, John writes another but whether it's the second epistle or not, here's the real point of the text. Here's the real problem with Diotrephes. Either there came to him an epistle from an apostle of Jesus Christ, or there came to him in some other form the words of an apostle of Jesus Christ. And Diotrephes said, I'm not going to listen to him. I don't need to listen to him. I'm right. I'm calling the shots. And I'm going to silence that man. Do you see that he's opposing truth? He might have even outwardly appeared to receive this epistle or this admonition. He might have realized that it wouldn't look good for him to blatantly oppose it. He might have said to the people, all right, we've, the, the apostle wrote us a letter and we have to pay attention to it. And then suddenly work to undermine what the apostle said. But he doesn't do anything subtly, not Diotrephes. He receiveth us not. And it begs the question, how do you receive the words of Jesus Christ your Lord, even when they come from the apostles in the Holy Scripture, or when they come from the preachers of the gospel who stand before you, how do you and how do I receive the word of the Lord? There is in each one of us an old man of sin that says, I'm sitting here today because when the word comes, 
I pass judgment on it. That's my calling. But then you're not going to receive the word very well. There is in each of us the new man, the calling of which is to say, I'm sitting here today because when the word comes, I'm sitting under it. I will receive it. Is that your attitude? And is that the spirit in which you came to church this morning? In the first place, Diotrephes received not the truth. He did not receive the words of the epistle. The second action, which shows that he opposes truth, of which the text speaks, is that he disparages the apostle with evil words. So that John says in the text, prating against us with malicious words. These are slanders. These are words that are at at the heart of it, lies. And the apostle recognizes that they're lies, not just because they're an attack on the apostle, and the apostle is out to defend his honor, but because the apostle, again, speaks as an apostle of the risen Lord. The apostle has been given to know truth, to understand truth by grace, and he could recognize then when somebody speaks a lie about him and a lie regarding him. But it goes with not receiving truth. If you will not receive the words that the apostle himself speaks to you or that the preacher brings to you, then what are you going to do? Well, you have to defend yourself somehow. And in defense of himself, Diotrephes says, the real issue, people, you should see, is with the apostle. So he attacks the apostle's person, and he attacks the apostle's office, and in the end, he lies. Now, this in itself should give Diotrephes pause. The apostle John, who followed his Lord, throughout the Lord's earthly ministry. The apostle John, who remained with his Lord even at the foot of the cross when the other disciples had forsaken him and fled. The apostle John, who was with the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. The apostle John, you need to speak lies about in order to exalt yourself don't you see your problem? No, the blind don't see their problem. But now again, aren't we like that? If in some respect the preaching has set forth a doctrine that we don't like, a practice that we don't like, if it's exposed a sin that we're rather fond of, aren't we prone not only to say I won't receive it but then also to say besides the man who brought that word has his own problems and so we turn the tables this is a malicious attack of Satan this isn't just a matter of saying no I don't believe I don't obey I'll admit I don't believe and obey this is instead an attempt of Satan to say no I am the right one here and the one who brings me the truth is the wrong one. 
The third way now in which Diotrephes shows that he is an opponent of truth is that he does not receive the brethren. Not content therewith. You would think that having spoken against the apostle and not received the word of the apostle, Diotrephes would say, okay, I've done enough damage. But not content therewith, neither doth he receive the brethren. We learned last week that the brethren are those traveling missionaries sent forth for the sake of Jesus Christ to preach among the Gentiles, that they need housing, lodging, food, that Gaius provided them with lodging and food. But if they should come and knock on Diotrephes' door, say, Diotrephes, you represent the church in this city. You're a leader here. We're traveling around preaching the gospel that your church professes and maintains and, and holds to, and we need a place to sleep, and we need some food, he would have shut the door in their face. That was Diotrephes. And therefore he opposes truth. When your pastor preaches the gospel to you, you don't say to him after the sermon, well, that was very nice. Um, you'll have to get a job, by the way, to support yourself, but we'll come every Sunday and we'll, we'll hear you talk, but we won't support you, those who would take that approach clearly do not love truth and do not love the ministry of the gospel. But that was Diotrephes. And number four, he forbiddeth them that would and casteth them out of the church. To this point, the first three actions of Diotrephes regard one mark of the true church, truth, and the preaching of the gospel, which is the declaring of truth. Now this fourth action of Diotrephes regards a second mark of the true church, and that is the mark of Christian discipline. And you should see, beloved, that there is an inevitable connection between the preaching of the gospel, the sacraments, and Christian discipline, so that if one of them is tarnished and tainted, the others will be affected. That's a point that's being underscored here. Diotrephes not only says to others, don't, don't support those men. Why are you giving your food and you're, you're opening your house to them? But he forbids them to do that and cast them out. The Bible doesn't tell us how he cast them out. Does he simply have such a presence in the church? Does he simply speak against people who don't do things his way that they finally say, there is no point in staying in this church. So effectively, he manages to get his way and they leave? Or does he somehow take that mark of the true church, Christian discipline, and abuse it so that with force and supposedly in the authority of Jesus Christ, they are sent out of the church and declared not to be true believers? We're not told exactly how. But what we're told is, the man so opposes truth that he will control the membership of the congregation so that all who are in the congregation are on his side, will see it his way, and if they really don't, they'll be quiet. It's in their best interest. Do you oppose truth? Or do you love it? 
The text, having set forth four actions of Diotrephes, now points out his motivation. Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. He wants to be first. Beloved, what one goal of the sermon this morning is, is to underscore for us the danger, the heinous sin of wanting to be first. Because when we understand the sin of wanting to be first, therefore when we fight against that sin in our hearts, the Lord will by his grace keep us from the actions that demonstrate a desire for preeminence, something from which Diotrephes was not kept. So what is the great sin of desiring preeminence? It's threefold. In the first place, it is a despising of him who is first in the church of Jesus Christ. There is one, and there is only one, and that is Jesus Christ himself. He's the head of the church, the Lord and Savior of the church, the one who gave his life unto death to redeem the church. He is the one who loves the church with the most perfect love. He is the one whose blood has bought us back again and put us into the congregation of the church of Jesus Christ. He is the one now who at the right hand of God continues to gather, defend, and preserve his church. He is first. And where he sits right now proves it. There's no other human who will ever be at the right hand of God the Father. But Jesus Christ is as our representative and head. He is first. When I want to be first, I show I hate the position Christ holds. In the second place, the great sin of preeminence and desiring preeminence is that if I've now dethroned Christ, I ignore the fact that Jesus Christ died for all my brothers and sisters in Christ, that from a very spirit, from a spiritual viewpoint and analysis, there is no human in the church of Jesus Christ who is above another. I don't deny, you don't deny, that God has created offices in the church and puts men in those offices, that there are men who hold distinct positions in the church, pastor, elder, and deacon, and that the holding of those positions serves the well-being of the church when the men who fill them serve truth. All that we know. But even then, the men who fill the offices are to be honored for their work's sake. As regards their persons, be they professors in the seminary, they are no different from the church. The body and her members are all equal and if we've dethroned Christ from being first in the church, there is not a one of us who has a claim to be above one another. But Diotrephes says to the people, you don't need Christ. You don't need John. You see you need me, don't you? You need me. I'm above you all. And in the third place, the great sin of desiring preeminence then 
is not just that one dethrones Christ and puts oneself above other members of the church, but that one says of truth itself. Truth does not matter. The word of God and the revelation of God does not matter. I matter. That was Diotrephes. What explains his sinful actions and his sinful motivation? Of course, it is, first of all, the sinful nature that he possesses. And that's why he's a warning to me and to you. Because we share the same sinful nature inherited from Adam and Eve. And therefore, it is our nature. Apart from grace, it is certain that we would seek ourselves and exalt ourselves in the church of Jesus Christ. In the second place, it's possible. This now is less certain than the first explanation that he has a sinful nature, but it is possible that this Diotrephes is attempting to combine paganism with Christianity. I told you last week that Gnosticism was doing that, the Gnostic heresy, an attempt to combine pagan Greek philosophy with Christian ideas. The name Diotrephes means a foster child of Zeus, the Greek god Zeus. And therefore it may be that Diotrephes is saying, you don't need Christ and I am above the rest of you because I'm an adopted child of this pagan god. Now even if he were an adopted child of this pagan god, and if that were some claim to fame, Prove, show me your adoption papers. Can you tell me that Zeus is saying this and not you? But even that, that would be a response that even a pagan could give. The Christian says, oh no, I've got my adoption papers. They're signed in the red ink of the blood of Jesus Christ. You are not above me. They're equal. Diotrephes, desiring preeminence, because he thinks he has some special divine status. I leave that again as a possibility, but the certainty is he has a sinful human nature. Now what's striking, having explained this man's sinful actions, his motive for them and the explanation for them, what's striking is that the Holy Spirit would reveal this to us in the scriptures. And it must be that there's something instructive for us here. There are several points of instruction. In the first place, the church of Jesus Christ will always have such men in her midst. At one time or another, they will be more prominent. There might even be a time or a period of time when it seems that there isn't such a man. At least he's not wreaking any havoc. But there are, at any given time, in the church of Jesus Christ, regardless of whether they're pushing their agenda yet or not, some who say, given the chance, I would take over this body and I would exalt myself and I would convince each one of you, you need me more than you need Jesus Christ and his apostles. Think of what Aaron and Miriam said to Moses in Numbers 12. You think you're big stuff, Moses? The Lord spoke to us too. 
How come you're acting like you're the only leader? Think later of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and their slanders against Moses in Numbers 6. Later, Absalom and Adonijah, sons of David, tried to say that when David died, they were the one who would be king. You, Israel, need me to be king. When the Lord said, no, it's Solomon who will be king. There were throughout the Old Testament false prophets, and also in the New Testament false apostles who were always warring against, speaking against the truth. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in Romans, Galatians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy. He's warning the church of Jesus Christ again and again, there will be wolves in sheep's clothing. You must guard against them. And that's a very practical purpose of the Holy Spirit reminding us that there will be diatrophies in the church. Are you guarding? Are you elders looking out to detect as best you are able and to address? Are we, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, ready to go to another in the congregation and say, I know I don't know your heart. I know I can't tell your every motivation, but your actions are not godly, and that only presupposes an evil motivation, and call him or her to repentance. We must be ready to do that because there will always be diatrophies in the church. Question isn't, are they there? Question is, will we let them become as prominent as they desire to be? Second point of instruction that comes to the church from this is the reminder that such men may never be put in office. Their desire for preeminence disqualifies them from serving in office. One way in which the Holy Spirit reminds us of that in 1 Timothy 3 is to tell us that no novice may be put in office. No one who's new to the faith, new to the Reformed faith, perhaps every congregation and consistory and council applies it even by saying there's a certain measure of time at which you have to be in the congregation, especially if we don't know you well as a brother that comes from a, a neighboring Protestant Reformed congregation. A certain amount of time we need to see how you act and how you meld and how you work with the congregation before we'll even consider you. You might be spiritually qualified, but we're going to first observe the church of Jesus Christ may not put into office a novice. In the third place, the point of instruction that we take from this is the church of Jesus Christ must sow no truth. she can detect a liar. Now these liars put spins on their words. Truth is always somehow being brought in that is true things, true statements, true doctrines, reformed doctrines, somehow being brought in. We must so know truth that we can detect one who perverts truth and calls it truth. That becomes our calling. How do we fulfill that calling? That's quite a calling. 
Well, we prayed, first of all, earnestly pray to God for the grace to do it. It isn't just that we've got the right tools in our minds, that we know the Reformed faith, that we understand sovereign grace. It's that we have in our heart the equipping of the Holy Spirit. Then in the fourth place, a very practical purpose of the Holy Spirit putting this in the Scriptures is to remind us, as I said in the introduction, that when you recognize such a man has come to preeminence in the church of Jesus Christ, it is not so easy to get rid of them. In fact, it will be a spiritual battle. Now there's somebody who's going to use that to his advantage, that somebody is Satan. You're not up to fighting that battle, are you? It's going to involve casualties. It's going to take effort, strenuous effort on your part. If you're a leader in the church who needs to be the forefront of fighting this battle, you are going to not be home every night of the week. You're going to be embroiled in controversy. You don't want that, do you? The cost is too great, so Satan says. Let it go. But we're called to war. We're called to resist. We're called to defend the church of Jesus Christ. And that's what John does. We come to the second point, John's promise to remember. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth. The point is that the apostle will not fail to address this man. He will not ignore this man. He does not say, well, the man, let him speak. He's just shouting into the wind anyway. He wasn't just shouting into the wind. He had an influence and following. And the apostle says, I will address the matter. Three things about this. How will he address the matter? He doesn't say how. Presumably, he'll go to the man face to face. He already wrote to him. The man received him not. But he's not going to leave it there. He will presumably go face to face and tell the man his sin and his sin against Jesus Christ. In the second place, he will do it with justice. The word translated wherefore is a conjunction. And in the English language conveys a logical connection between what preceded and what is now. When John says, wherefore if I come, he's saying, on account of this thing, if I come, I will address him. He's going to do so recognizing the great danger that this man poses. And his own motivation, John's, will be love for the church of Christ and a zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ the church's head. And in the third place, he says, if I come. He in fact plans to come. I trust I shall shortly see thee and we shall speak face to face. With a similar line, he ended both the second and the third epistles. He is not himself uncertain about his desire to come or his intent to come. He is in fact about both his desire and his intent to come. Why, therefore, does he say, if I come? The answer is because he knows the Lord directs his way. The Lord will either bring him to face Diotrephes 
or the Lord could kill John, bring John to heaven and death before that moment, or in some other way prevent John from doing it because the Lord is in control of all of life and also of this evil mouth that vents forth stuff from this evil heart. If it's the Lord's will, I will come and remember his evil deeds. There are several implications to take from this part of the text. And the first is that the church of Jesus Christ must impose Christian discipline and Christian censure and, if necessary, excommunicate from her fellowship such a man. If the apostle was going to do what he could, even somewhat single-handedly, but in the authority that Jesus Christ gave him, then the church, through her consistory, must address the matter. The elders are to lead the way. And when the elders lead the way in doing that, none in the congregation should say, but that's my friend. I think the guy's right. He's speaking out against the establishment. And now the establishment is responding against him. See, it proves his point. But let the members of the congregation say, may the name of Jesus Christ our Lord be magnified. Bless, Lord, and equip our elders as they deal with a real threat, not just to the unity of the church, but to the truth of which the church is the pillar and ground. Congregation, what matters is not, first of all, who on earth I meet. Not, first of all, did my friend get what he wanted. What matters is, is the name of Jesus Christ, the head of the church, honored and glorified. What matters is, is truth with a capital T, honored here. I don't just mean by that that we make the matter a doctrinal issue and we say we're going to stand for truth. We have to do that with doctrinal issues. Don't mistake me. But capital truth is at stake here, not just as the man teaches false doctrine, but as the man lives an ungodly life. The elders must lead the way. The church must support and pray for the work of the elders because the congregation sees that her existence is at stake, if not as an earthly instituted organization, then as a faithful church of Jesus Christ. The second implication is that this work of Christian discipline and all that it entails must be carried out in the name of and in the authority of Jesus Christ himself. Who is John to say, if I come, I will? The skeptic, the one trying to paint John Black, can say, see, John, you're just like Diotrephes. You're just on opposite sides of the issue because you have the same motivation in your heart. You both want preeminence, but that wouldn't be true, would it? Who is John? He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He understands the office entrusted to him and the authority that he has in that office and the weighty responsibility that's embedded in it. 
Likewise, when the elders deal with such a member in the congregation, we might say of them, see, he's attacking the establishment. They are the establishment. There you see his point being proved. We might say that, but you want then? You, you have to be ready when you say that to stand before Jesus Christ in judgment day and tell him that the men he put in office are incompetent. And if you're not ready to do that, then you say, as those elders are doing the work of Christian discipline in behalf of truth and in defense of the church of Jesus Christ, they are functioning as the men to whom God gave authority to do this very thing. In the third place, the implication is that the church may remember. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth. Now some will say, no, that's not a Christian attitude. We want to forget sin. A point to Psalm 25, verse 7, where the uh, the psalmist comes to God in prayer and says, Remember not, O Lord, my sins of long ago. But do you see why that doesn't pertain? When my brother or sister has sinned against me, when I've sinned against God, and I come to God saying, Remember not, and I tell my brother or sister, I don't remember, I have forgotten, that presupposes sorrow and penitence on the part of the sinner. That presupposes there was forgiveness already granted and spoken, declared and assured because I understand my brother or sister is grieved by his or her sin and sees what a heinous sin it was in God's sight and I want my brother or sister to know you're a brother and you're a sister your sins are covered by the blood of Christ. We will enjoy the fellowship that sinners can enjoy together on earth. But none of that could be said of Diotrephes. He wasn't repentant. He hadn't confessed. In fact, confessing his sin was the last thing he intended to do. And therefore, the apostle is not wrong. And the church of Jesus Christ is not wrong to say, I will Remember, this remembrance is a matter of saying you're an enemy of the cause. And any soldier who forgets the colors of the uniforms of the enemy army and therefore says, as far as I'm concerned, you're one of me, exposes his entire country to danger. Now at the, at the bottom of it, as we saw in the other sermons on this epistle, there is somebody else saying, if I come, I will remember. And that somebody else is Jesus Christ himself who speaks through the apostle. 
Embedded and implied in the text is a doctrine of the second coming of Jesus Christ to judge. The text does not explicitly teach that doctrine. It certainly is not meaning to teach us that doctrine from uh, the viewpoint of setting forth the different aspects of that doctrine for our understanding. But embedded is, if I come, I will remember. And here Jesus Christ in saying if isn't just saying it's a question whether I will, but Jesus Christ is saying I will come. I will come again from heaven to earth to gather my church before me as well as the wicked world. And included in the wicked world will be those who appeared to be in the church on earth but spoke out against her. I will remember and of that group who's called the wicked world, including all of those who've opposed truth, Jesus Christ will say to them, I remember. I remember what you said about my apostle. I remember what you said about the preacher I put in office and sent to you. I remember what you said about the elder and the deacon that I raised up and gave to you. I remember. And when Jehovah God in Jesus Christ gathers you and me before him and says to us, I remember, you and I tremble. If on the other hand he says, you did do those things, You were sorry. I humbled you. You were humbled by hearing and receiving the admonitions of others. And the blood of Jesus Christ covered your sins. Then the day of judgment is a day of joy and gladness and happiness. The Lord not saying to us, I still remember. But the Lord saying to us, the blood of Christ has blotted out and erased. If the Lord says to you, I remember, there is no more hope. That is the awesome, the weighty doctrine that's embedded in this text. And you cannot, or you can assume, you can believe that when the Lord comes, he will remember. Some sinners who go on in their sins and are warned about the day of the coming of Jesus Christ say, but he's going to forget. That's what I'm banking on. He's going to forget. I'm no different from anyone else. Why would he remember mine and not remember theirs? That makes no sense to me. Mine aren't even as bad as that man. He's not going to remember. Will they say it that blatantly and deliberately? Maybe not. But it's what's behind our denials, our making excuses. Do you know why? With certainty, our Lord will remember because he is true with capital T, and truth does not forget.
And so as the Word of God brings you and me this morning to stand before the reality of a great coming day, network repentance in any one of this congregation or the Church of Jesus Christ anywhere who have a desire for preeminence. That's every one of us in a certain respect, to be clear, because we have that nature, we need the warning, we need the reminder. And then in the second place, if there be any who in a particular way are being critical of the church's office bears and the church's stand for truth and are suggesting that they could do a better job, maybe even single-handedly, of running the church, let the warning be taken to heart. What the text calls you to do for the good of your soul is saying, no, not me first. That would be the worst thing for Cornerstone Protestant Forum Church if I was first. Jesus Christ, may he be first. You hearing that word? Diotrephes wouldn't. That was part of his receiving John not. Are you hearing the word? But then, to all who behold, Jesus Christ is preeminent, exalted at God's right hand, the one and only Savior of the church, the one who alone as God came in the flesh to die for us, the one who alone as God arose from dead in the flesh representing us to earn heaven for us, to prepare heaven for us, and at the right hand of God is making that home ready for us, to us who say, let him be first. The, impl the implied doctrine of the text of the future return of Christ for judgment encourages us in hope. There are those who wreak havoc in the church of Jesus Christ. There are those whom, though the church opposes, it's a battle, bloody battle to the end. But there will come a day when Jesus Christ will shut their mouths. He will have the last word, and they won't sass back to him. And he will say, there's a place in hell for you. The Church of Jesus Christ doesn't desire, that is, we have no personal desire for the destruction and condemnation of our enemies. We will pray for their repentance. And yet when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and destroys those who must be destroyed, we will see we have been at last delivered and being brought now into heaven, there will be peace, unity, harmony, and our love will be for truth and truth with a capital T, our exalted Savior. Live in that hope, and then in that hope, don't say, I'll let the Lord take care of it. But if I come, even to me as a human, as the Lord gives me opportunity to address that man, I will remember. Amen.
Our Father which art in heaven, equip and encourage us by thy word, but if there be any here or any who hear this word elsewhere who must be humbled and brought to repentance by it, so work by thy spirit in their hearts graciously, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.